This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. the world still following this Idaho uh, quadruple homicide yeah I am court. so I almost cut it out I, I messed around with the edit for uh, Genesis part one which is the first episode in this series where I had considered uh, leaving out what, when we were talking about uh, the genetic genealogy part it's not a hundred percent accurate. It's not completely wrong. It's just like we sort of went with what mainstream media was sort of saying because we were, I was following that because I was interested in the idea that they did some kind of matching in real time. And I think you were as well. I was. And so I think we had recorded maybe, I can't remember if it was the day of or the day before he was initially brought back to Idaho from Pennsylvania after he had waived extradition and they released the probable cause affidavit. And as soon as I saw that, I realized that my perception was incorrect. Uh, it, I wasn't completely wrong, but like they didn't take an unknown perps profile and run it through like Jed match and come and pluck this guy out of nowhere. What they did was they, they recovered DNA from the knife sheath that was left beside one of the victims. And it was a full unknown male's profile. And if you, uh, you can look anywhere online and find the probable cause affidavit and read about how they got to Brian Koberger. But essentially what they did after they had examined like quite a bit of evidence against him, or I guess information against him, related to his possible involvement in the crime, law enforcement in Pennsylvania had watched him dispose of some stuff in a neighbor's garbage can and his own garbage can. And so they retrieved it. They were able to find a, uh, I don't know what it was, but something had a full male profile that uh, it proved to be the suspect or the person who had left their DNA on the knife sheath, it was that DNA profile's father. Yeah, to a pretty high probability that it couldn't be someone else, basically. Right. Um, and, you know, it isn't like, uh, I was trying to explain this. I'm not, I'm not a teacher, for sure. However, <laughs> I was trying to help somebody understand this because you know it, it I think it's like a 99.9999998 percent chance right <laughs> which is very close to a hundred percent and they were doing the math on it and they were like well but if you narrow that down like you're still finding yeah you know, I don't know what the number was but uh you know a number of people that would be included in that and when you're talking about billions of people I would imagine it's probably several thousand people I, I don't actually know but the point of the statistics there is that if you're you're down to where you're trying to figure out, like in this instance, they have an unknown male's DNA left on the holder for the potential murder weapon, right? Yeah. That direct comparison there, the fact that they plucked from obscurity, basically, some DNA from a trash can in like, you know, rural Pennsylvania with a person of interest they were tracking and that that person was biologically the father of the suspect. While, you know, that 99.9998, like it leaves open the fact that like there could be more than one person. The fact that that direct comparison happened means that that is the person. It is highly improbable that that match would occur otherwise. Yeah, and I wanted to clear that up as we started today's episode that uh, it didn't turn out to be 
uh, exactly what it was. So we were recording and, and Con Air was going on, which means he was being transported. We knew right. So that must have been the like day before he was, because we didn't get the probable cause affidavit till the next day. But when I listened to the episode, you were right. It wasn't genealogy happening in real time. Like I was thinking but it was still like a form of family comparison. And it is genetic genealogy, but it's different than where they're putting, you know, an unknown profile and finding it a match through a public database or a commercial database, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I just wanted to clear that up because I feel like I don't want I feel like the DNA stuff is huge and I don't want anybody that happened to be listening to us to like misunderstand and, uh, you know, I don't want to lose credibility. And you're right. I guess we're just, I mean, we may be there, but, like, we haven't seen an example, which I thought this might be an example. Yeah, I think there's so many eyes on this case. Like, literally every podcast I used to listen to has put out an uh, Idaho case episode. And and then there's so many groups on Facebook and, and Reddit and WebSleuths and everybody's talking about it. And I don't. You know, I, I worked pretty hard to minimize, like, the um, amount of times his name was said. And, and and my take on that case is it got way less interesting when he was arrested. And it's not, that's not a slight on the victims. The victims are gone. Their families are here left to, you know, pick up the pieces. It's not a slight on them. It's uh, – I don't understand the fascination with that, and you've explained it to me multiple times. I just can't. I can't dedicate a lot of headspace to that particular case. Um, it just happens to be dominating the media, Gabby Petito style. Um, you know, she's been <laughs> gone for quite some time, and uh, I, I don't, I don't understand those cases when that happens. But more specifically, I don't understand the audiences because yeah, the, that's true. Um, the behavior that, of the the people, not any particular person, but the people. Just in the, the masses, media. yeah. Well, in the, the media as well, like they, um, you know, they they're gonna they're gonna create ripples and copycats and other things from the way they're covering this case. It's wholly irresponsible. It's unethical. It's problematic at best. But I'd already talked about it, and I'd said some things, and, and you had said some things that were sort of on the edge of being right, but not really correct. And I wanted to correct those before we got into, like, the stuff we're covering for today's cases. Right. Um, I, um, I agree. I, I feel like um, that was worth uh addressing. Touching on. <laughs> we will um, – and I agree with the – as far as the – it's it's an experience. I I do realize that people are very passionate, right, about crime. For no, for no reason. No well, reason whatsoever. This case is just floating up there. That's and, I, I don't think like, it's like even as you're talking, like I I have to I have to steer you back because I know I get the fascination with it. And it's not that I don't want to talk about it with you. It's that like, you know. I, it's irresponsible. Right, but I don't think it's uh, for no reason. I think there's a clear reason. It was four kids killed in their sleep. And I understand that, but like, but here's the thing. Once you say that, and they release the probable cause affidavit, and this is not to you directly, like you, Meg, this is to people that are following the case. That's it. That's it. That's all there is. I have nothing new to offer you. I don't have an opinion on that case yet. There's not enough information there to gather the opinion. Other, The opinion that can be gathered from what's happened is, oh, they arrested someone, and it looks like they did police work. And the police work looks relatively solid. That's it. Everything else is sort of irresponsible speculation. All these other podcasts that are putting out, oh, my opinion is this, and my opinion is that, and these words mean that. Like, So there's an FBI profiler, uh, FBI agent who, I don't, I'm not going to get into her whole background. Do you know who I'm talking about when I just say those words right there? Without, I do. like, Okay. I don't know what's happened to her. I don't know if, like, without naming her, and I'm not going to slander her or libel her or any of the things that I could do here. There's something wrong with her. 
And she will stir up a shitstorm on Facebook and Twitter with the smallest words in an affidavit. And I understand, like, she has a level of training and experience that is slightly higher than the, the average investigator, which is the average investigator is slightly higher than the, the normal member of the public. But she right now is illustrating what I call the attention seeking super cop concept where she's talking about every single thing the police say. Um, it's not even the police anymore. I don't know if you've noticed this, but like they did a search of his house and she was picking apart like every word in the ceiling of the search warrant return of the perpetrator's home or the suspect's home, the defendant's home. That's what it is. He's currently a defendant. It's because from what I can tell that people have added me into and that you and I have talked about and looked at, I am currently a member of eight groups related to this that have over 750,000 active members. And that's if you glean out the duplicates. The largest group I think is 300,000 or something in that range. And there's, you know, getting people together like that and having them just rant about non information like it's not information it's nonsense and i don't want to say that like i i would never say that to you you know for 50 million reasons my partner in podcasting my friend all those things but to like have you noticed it's gotten insane it's insane from the very beginning what i mean is have you noticed that like people who have nothing to say about it are saying it louder than everyone else Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, so I'll end up shaving this down a little bit. I don't, I can't stay on this case. Like, like it's like this case is okay. This case is part of the problem in the world because investigators and lawyers and court administrators and the people related to cases look at the public and how they're behaving with this case. And it gives them further fuel to say, Oh, we need to seal all this stuff. Cause that's what's happening. Like, um, I don't, you know, the FBI person is saying it means he's got an accomplice or it means there's more crimes or whatever thing she's dragging her Twitter followers through. I don't even know how many she has, but I'm sure it's way too many. The people who have the information and are doling it out in little dribbles here. What they don't understand is the way they're doling it out in little dribbles is causing this. Just be transparent with the case. This is what we have. This is what we don't have. And right now, you know, they're playing these tactical games. The defense is playing them as well. But currently the prosecution is playing these tactical games of only having so much information out at a time. And that other information is now all sealed uh, from what I can tell, the first round of it is sealed into March, and then the other round is sealed until whatever date happens after March. So you've got two search warrants that people will talk about for the next six months. Right, but nobody has any information on it. I mean, they're sealed and... But why are we talking about it? Gag- well, I wasn't us, talking but, about yeah. it. <laughs> um, uh, it's... Yeah, I agree. I mean... I don't know what else to respond with. Okay. I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot there. I'm curious because like, I like, it looks like, like, it's like, did you watch the movie Jaws growing up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. Remember the crowds on the beaches when yeah. the shark attacks were happening? It's like that, but it's like, like social media, real time. I don't, I don't know how to describe it. It's really disturbing to me to watch. I'm so, what I'm guilty of here, and I'll just go ahead and admit it, I get fascinated by how people want to be a part of this. Like, I sit down and watch, like, so I'm, I listen to a couple of the different podcast takes on it. 90% of those are terrible. 
8% of those are terrible. And then I will sit and I'll scroll through and I'll read people's posts and comments on this stuff. And like an hour will go by because I am just fascinated at how terrible people are to each other. Like it's really bad. A person will say a nonsense post or whatever comment about the case, but it'll be like theirs that they own and they authored. They will immediately have 800 responses from people who think they should shut up, agree with them and disagree with them. And then it really gets good when you get into the comments and like, it's like the blind leading the blind. And uh, I, I am, I'm absolutely blown away by how a case like this feeds it becomes a cash cow for the media that's your word that i stole from you when we were working on something else this week but like the media can't get enough of the clicks and the likes and the responses and it just gets more irresponsible so now i'm going to stand up i'm going to step off of my soapbox and i'm going to take my soapbox and i'll throw it away did you see the press release i sent you about the guy down in manatee county florida the, the guy who was arrested for the cold case? Yeah. Okay. This is fascinating to me because, okay. So this gentleman's name is Pedro Garcia. He's 40 years old. He just got charged with, um, the, the charge, the, the way they filed it is it's murder, not premeditated. It's from a 2006 case. So if we put our math brains on and we go back in time, 18 years, this guy's going to be 22 years old-ish, 21, 22 years old. And here's what the – so there's a press release. I saw, I found a little story about it on Pax.com um, by a, a woman named Tiffany Rosano. It just says she's patched up. And it came out on January the 10th this year. I saw the press release, but it, the press release was not – it was pretty dry – um, and Tiffany did a pretty good job putting together um, like a, what I call a blurb. Uh, the byline is Manatee County, Florida, and the title is 2006 Cold Case Murder Solved, Manatee County Sheriff. After 16 years, a Bradenton man has been charged in a 2006 murder. The murder is uh, of a man named Guadalupe Vela, and he was 20 years old at the time of his death. On July 25th, 2006, Vela got into an argument with, at the time, an unknown gentleman who was thought to be a member of the street gang, the Eastside Crips, at the Santa Fe Bar and Grill in Bradenton. The victim was a member of a rival gang and continued to argue with Garcia outside the bar before both men left the area, and they headed in different directions. This is according to the Manatee County Sheriff's Office. But later, uh, Vela went to a relative's house in the 100 block of 33rd Avenue East, and he ran into the same gang member. Uh, the argument continued and turned to gunfire. So this guy, Garcia, he uh, he's identified now as being that gang member that Vela was getting into it with. Garcia shot at Vela, and he hit him twice in the back while Vela was trying to get away. So Vela ended up being found dead in, in a, Holmes, a nearby Holmes backyard. Deputies collected several 9mm bullet casings from the road, and potential witnesses of the shooting had refused to speak with the investigators. Now, in October of 2006, Garcia was stopped for a traffic violation in the 1300 block of 9th Avenue West in Bradenton. Deputies found a 9mm gun in his car and arrested him for possessing a firearm as a felon. Uh, FDLE did ballistics testing on that gun, and they linked it back to the crime scene and the casings and the bullets where Vela's body had been found. The rounds that hit the victim seemed to have come from a different gun, but these were other rounds and casings found at the scene. In the years that followed, separate witnesses told detectives that Garcia had made statements to them about killing Vela. And last summer, in 2022, detectives learned that Garcia, who was in the Manatee County Jail in 2015, had confided to another inmate that he killed Vela, and he provided specific details about the night and things that were happening at the crime scene. 
Another prisoner at the Wakula Correctional Institute told detectives that in July of 2021 that they saw Garcia actually shoot Vela. So on Monday in 2023, the Homicide Investigation Unit at the Sheriff's Department, they got a warrant to arrest Garcia in connection with Vela's death. Here's what's crazy. This is the second cold case they've solved with the same guy. In June of 2021, they issued an arrest warrant for the 2014 murder. So 2006 is Guadalupe Vela. 2014 is a guy named Samuel Conde. The same guy who goes by Padico, P-E-D-I-C-O, um, or Pedro or Padico Garcia, he's like up for both murders. So he was out on bond for Conte's death. And they found him walking on the 800th block of 30th Avenue West in Bradenton. And they arrested him again. They believe this is at least his third homicide. So I have a number of questions for you here. This is one of those cases where the ballistics on this were done in 2006 and 2007. They link him to it, but they I guess it's because from what I could find um, digging around on this case, what they're referencing as ballistics is projectiles that hit a nearby home at the time of Vela's death, they believe. Is that why they don't arrest him pretty much right away? Because they get this gun in October of 2006 after this has happened in the summer of 2006. They're just now arresting this guy. Well, right, but it, they're arresting him based on witness testimony. So that's what they're using to, to shore up. Well, the ballistics, it's a bunch of jailhouse people. Well, the ballistics, to me, it sounded like what you were saying was that, like, they found uh, casings at the scene that matched um, a gun that he was known to be in possession of, but they weren't the bullets that killed the guy. <laughs> Yeah, that's what it looks like. I don't 100% know that because I'm not looking at court records. I'm sort of piecing together from press releases and warrants. Um, uh, so this guy is what I would refer to as an asshole murderer. <laughs> I just was going to call him a gangbanger, but I guess that's not PC I mean, he, he loses his temper and he shoots people. That's what it sounds like is happening here. I mean, he shot the guy in the back, right? Yeah. Um, and so uh, there could be many more, um, more than likely he has probably done it every single time in front of somebody. Um, and in the interest of judicial efficiency, uh, the best thing they could do at this point is probably offer him, uh, you know, whatever <laughs> life. Cause at some point, even though like he's not, cause it's not like first degree murder, except, if I were the prosecutor, I would probably argue that um, based on the mindset, like anytime you're like ready and able to kill somebody in a second, like that would be first degree murder, right? Gotcha. Um, when it's not like you accidentally pushed them, they fell and hit their head. You know, if you're shooting somebody, I mean, you've got the gun on you. All, I mean, I could argue it, but it doesn't matter. But even though like he's getting charged with like um, not first degree murder, like you still only get so many shots at that, right? Like, I mean, it's not like you get to just continue committing secondary murder, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I really do think they should talk to this guy and figure out how many people he's killed. Um, I don't consider him to be a serial killer. I consider him to be a person who has anger issues and access to a gun. Yeah, he's definitely, I mean, he's he's definitely not a serial killer. Um, I think it's anger issues. I, I could even see it being, like, just related to criminal activity. Um, yeah, I don't, they don't go into any sort of, like, details of, like, why he shot that guy in the back, right? <laughs> no, it's just an argument. It was, like, right. it was a pissing contest is the way they describe it. I mean, even the other cold case homicide, so it was weird, he... At one point, he was doing time for federal weapons charges. That's uh, talking about Pedro. The other guy that he shot, uh, Samuel Condi, he went by Spanky. So Spanky, he was just having a beer at a place he wasn't supposed to be. He was 25 back in 2014 when he was shot. 
basically when the bars close up, people would go over to this place on 9th Street East and they could keep drinking there at sort of an unofficial bar. I think somebody's house has a garage set up with a bunch of beer type yeah. place um, or somebody's uh, storage building, I think is what it was. You've got Pedro, who's a crip. And at the time, Spanky was in, um, was a sure 13, S-U-R 13. So they're just in rival gangs. And, you know, because we're mature and advanced human species, we think that if somebody else hangs out with other people officially and swears their allegiance to them, we should kill them. So that's what that's what's going on. Like, it's not even it's not even very angry. It, it gets a little angry. Like, get out of here. I don't want you in my territory. Well, the premise of it is anger, even correct. the fact that, like, they have these rival gangs or whatever to begin with. That's anger. It's so weird to me. Well, it's, it's really, it's, it's waste. It, it's a waste. It's a waste that like he chose that for his you know life. It's a waste that these uh, victims lost their life. And all of it is just, um, it's well, and also now they haven't been working on it consistently. Right. But it's taken years and years and years and years for them to put all this together. And, uh, it's one of those cases where I imagine are actually probably several cases where like they probably have a good suspicion of who did this. And like they really needed that um, eyewitness testimony to tie it in to get him arrested for it. Now, um, he's just been arrested for it. He hasn't been convicted of it. And, you know, he'll either plead it out or a jury has to decide, you know, the credibility of the, what do you call them? Just jailhouse. Witness. Yeah. There's several like different jailhouse snitches or informants. Um, and so because of that, like, you know, the jury, if it's a jury trial, if it's a judge, if it's a bench trial would be the judge, but like, you know, the jury or the judge gets to listen to what the witness has to say, and they get to decide if that witness is credible, um, despite the fact that, you know, they're uh, in jail or whatever. Um, and so, you know, they really, I guess they had to have that to tie him back around. Because, you know, in a shooting, especially in a situation where you're, you know, dealing with people who aren't going to like the people standing there watching this happen, they were like, yeah, we're out of here. We don't want to have anything to do with this. Right. It's not like they call the police and they're like, Hey, he shot him. Right. You don't want to tattle or whatever. And so it's not like you're going to have a lot of DNA evidence coming forward. Right. Um, right. As far right. As, like him being shot. And so you have to rely on other things. And it sounds like, um, now the fact that this guy was out on bond for a murder, <laughs> Um, like what is happening? Another there? cold case murder. That's what I was. I was just like, they like he's not been out of um, even prison that long. Because then I looked up at one point. I, I pulled up his. Um, I think it was his Bureau of Prisons profile, and it said he'd been released in 2022. So basically, every time this guy gets out for one thing, they just arrest him for another thing. At and this point, I think this is a. Um, and I guess it could be a strategy. I kind of doubt it, though. This is, like, almost a systematic problem as far as him, like, being in jail, getting out, getting rearrested, like, that kind of thing. And the other part is it's hard to tell how much of a threat he really is anymore, right? Because yeah. nothing's that recent, right? No, uh, it looks like 2014... 2006. I don't, I mean, I didn't pull his whole criminal record. The because whole I thing is though that like after 16 years, uh, they finally charged uh, the suspect uh, in the murder of the 2006 murder of uh, Guadalupe Vega, right? Yeah, that's where we started. Yeah. And so, you know, 16 years have passed and um, I always get concerned when, and you don't, I don't read it that often. I don't know about you. But when they like, so they issued this arrest warrant and they found him out on bond right? <laughs> um, for another murder. Yeah, he was already on bond. They <laughs> issued an arrest warrant and they went and picked him up on the new charge. Yeah. To me, I don't understand why somebody, um, he, I don't see why a person that's committed multiple murders would get bond. Oh. <sighs> 
Oh, so the other thing that I noticed about him, which that's definitely a systemic problem. So somehow I ended up, I looked at his um, like Florida DOC record and I realized like, okay, so first of all, he's kind of a miracle in the gang world. He's still technically a gangster. And he's what, because he lived to 40? Yeah, yeah, because he's 40. But what I noticed was, and he's, but, but I'm, so it's, it's not that he's just that he's 40. It's that he's still doing this nonsense because he still has criminal stuff happening like his whole life. I don't know how affiliated he, he is anymore or not, but I noticed that like if you look at his mug shots and kind of click through to the most recent one, he has the teardrop tattoo. Oh, how many does he have? I think he has four. Well, I, you're going to be looking for four victims there. That, yeah. So he's got three, so there's one more, right? Yeah, so I think three of them have been laid on him, um, and there's probably, you know, it's probably going to be another unsolved shooting in that area sometime between 2006 and 2014. Right, and, I, and so my point is I feel like um, the best thing to do probably before we got here <laughs> Uh, would be to say, like, okay, tell us everybody you've killed, you know, we're going to do life in prison without the possibility of parole. And, uh, you know, he because he needs to be behind bars. Um, I, I'm not really sure. I have, I have a big problem with, I don't know all of it, but just, you know, when you, it doesn't happen as much anymore. I will admit that. But, um, and the reason it doesn't happen as much anymore is because like it shouldn't have happened to begin with. Right. Um, once, you know, somebody's committed a violent offense and I would say somebody that has access to a gun, which would be about anybody, but, and then has the personality to pull it out and shoot somebody like they just need to go to jail. (laughs) I, I mean, once they've done I, that, I, I agree with you. I don't know why um, he's walking around free. He he shouldn't be, um, and uh, hopefully they'll take care of that. I I don't know how much. I would be interested in like who the witnesses and what they had to say and how credible it was. But well, this one I noticed. <laughs> I, you know what I noticed? I noticed that they waited until they had somebody who wasn't locked up. That so there was one witness statement in there that was not a person who was currently incarcerated, right? But they had previously been. I don't know about that. They they had two jailhouse informants. Okay, that's what my understanding. I don't know. You're right. I don't know. Um, There's a third person that I can't. <laughs> I I assume. Well, okay, that is wrong for me to say this, but I assume that if you're at the scene of a shooting and you're telling the story, uh, essentially 18 years later. Give but you take. want something out of it. You either want something out of it, or you're unloading, or you possibly have been incarcerated before. And you know how this all works. I'm like, I can't imagine. Like, that's a take it to your grave or use it as a card. Um, you know, you know what I mean. Like, I can't imagine that you just have this unless you suddenly get in this guy's crosshairs, and like you just need him to not be there anymore because you remember right, that night well, you killed that guy. You don't want him to kill you. Well, and see, that's why nobody talks, right? That's why these, like, gangs, um, like, nobody goes to the police about anything, right? They handle it themselves. And uh, that's why, and it's like this, you know, almost like an anarchy situation within the organization. I, I don't really, within the group of people that do this, right? They handle things themselves. And so, you're right, nobody talks. Um, but yeah, so, you know, anytime there's a crime that happens, it's either you report it immediately, right? Um, you uh, take it to your grave or you get yourself in a pent and you use it. Um, but it's got to be substantially, it has to outweigh whatever your pent is, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, in order for it to be effective. Now, if it doesn't, I, I don't necessarily, like, if somebody has, like, drug charges or something, I don't necessarily have a problem with them taking down a murder in exchange for leniency, right? Uh, violent crimes always are going to uh, trump anything else, in my opinion, as far as trying to get, like, uh, justice. This guy has eluded it for whatever reason, and it sounds like there's 
I, it sounds like the cops probably knew and they were just sort of waiting. Um, or, you know, it could have gone unsolved indefinitely, but they, if you don't have the evidence, you don't have the evidence and that's that. Right. Um, and I would assume that these, this, the law enforcement involved here, they would know this situation, the people involved, the area involved enough to know that without somebody coming forward, they weren't going to be able to solve the case. Right. Um, and that's a lot of unsolved murders, right? Um, the ones that, you know, especially shootings, especially those kind of crimes where it's not like personal and like, uh, you know, the, the motivation is basically anger. Right. And obviously, and if we think about the three motives for murder, which are love, money, or revenge, a lot of times, and, you know, anger would fuel, it could fuel all of them, but mostly revenge. Right. Yeah. Um, because revenge is a, um, it's, you know, where you want to like, I'm going to get you back and you shoot them. And that's what I imagine happening here. I guess it could be over money. Maybe I I doubt it though. I don't, I don't actually know, but uh, I'm glad that they are making strides against this guy. And this is the kind of thing like I would really like to see. And I, it stretches so long. I don't know if anybody's going, Hey, wait, why is this guy out? And what's happening here? Because I know for the most part, before I did this type of research and I looked into cases, I would have chalked this up to something I just didn't understand, right? I would say, oh, that must be some reason for that. And maybe there is. However, it's not something I don't understand anymore. I have absolutely no question whatsoever that um, he should not have been able to commit, you know, his third murder, (laughs) Oh, I'm with you, yeah. And and that doesn't add up no matter what, right? Well, there's so many cases that I read about where it's not murder-related that people get life in prison for weird things, particularly when, like, three strikes laws and habitual uh, convictions were, like, a big deal. And the mandatory minimums, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and mandatory minimums related to those. We would see, like, so many people go to jail for different types of theft and different types of, in some instances, like, I call them financial crimes, but really they're like, it's more like, I would say nonviolent money crimes because sometimes it's like a theft and an ongoing theft. I mean, I've seen people go for these little larceny charges that barely are a felony, but then there's also embezzlement people that get these huge long sentences. And it's not that I think their crimes are less. It's just like, I think this guy's dropping bodies. Why can't he get the same amount of time as the person who took the long sentence for embezzlement or whatever? No, their crimes are less. People that aren't that are commit embezzlement any day of the week, their crime is a lesser crime than murder. Right, right, right. I understand that, but I'm I'm saying it's not that I want them to get a tiny sentence. I'm just saying, why doesn't this guy's sentence there's match a, theirs? There's a problem, and you know, I feel like maybe if I had access to everything, I don't know if he like made a deal, maybe right. Um, because oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. That's yeah. my, that's my first inclination that he must have somehow, right. Uh, made a deal and that's how he ended up being out to begin with. Um, I don't know. And, you know, plea deals aren't, I mean, you get the, the bottom line, right. Yeah. Uh, that's all you really get though. You don't know what happened in the in-between and basically the, you know, the, dis, uh, the, defense attorney and the prosecutor uh, come to an agreement. The judge, you know, rubber stamps it most of the time. As far as, as long as they've agreed to it, they just, you know, they say that's fine. Uh, I have seen some judges not accept, um, you know, plea deals that have been prearranged, but I think that when judges are looking at things, uh, they really need to look into you know, why is this murder out? And that kind of thing is something a judge should actually say, like, wait a second, you can't leave this <laughs> out there. And, you know, that's right. kind of there, and there are mandatory minimums now. And what that means essentially is like, there is no getting around it, right? You have to yeah. serve a certain amount of time. Um, but that's, you know, that's newer. And I don't know how far back, I mean, he, if he was 20 something and he's 40 something now, I mean that he couldn't have had that much, before right 
it's not like he was committing crimes in the eighties, right? Where they could oh, do whatever no, they wanted that, or whatever. No. Right. No, he's going to be like, uh, it's going to be late nineties and sort of moving into the two thousands. That probably is going to be the time he was the most active. We're going to come back to Florida in a, in a minute, but I wanted to touch back on what we were talking about with, uh, um, lonely hearts killers. I, you know, I realized that a lot of times in the U.S., and I actually ran into a problem with a couple of these guys that we're going to talk about. Um, a lot of times in the U.S., we don't get a lot. We have so much going on over here in the media that we don't get a lot of the foreign serial killers, except for, like, the very extreme ones. Um, like, we know Bundy. We know Dahmer. We know the Night Stalker. We know BTK. We know the Golden State Killer. Like, like we know uh, Gary Ridgeway. Uh all of those people come up here, but like sometimes the people that are operating at the same time as them in other countries never really uh, like even touch our media. So I wanted to talk about a couple of them as we move towards this uh, killer. So to clarify, when I said we're talking about a few serial killers, we haven't actually talked about one yet. We're building up to the first one. But we had talked about Lonely Hearts killers and people who kill people who place ads, whether it's online or at the time period we're dealing with, it would have been in more newspaper and periodicals that they were using. And I found this one in the course of my research for the season that I want to mention here because it was bizarre. So this is a guy, he's known as the cuckoo. Had you ever heard of the cuckoo before? Um, I had not ever heard of him, no. Okay, so he's an Italian guy who he was born in 1956 in Italy but he actually naturalized into France in 1982 his primary name was the cuckoo but he was also known as the classified ads killer his his given name is Alfredo Stranieri and I'm going to be saying most of the names wrong in the in this episode because um, I've noticed that a, a lot of this is translated three or four times and there's very little information available in straight up English about Alfredo or the cuckoo. So this guy's deal was he met victims through classified ads. He would present himself as someone who was going to be purchasing something from his victims. Well, it's a little, I felt like that, it, it, you're right, he is known as the cuckoo and the classified ad killer, but you saw that he was like, it wasn't like furniture, right? That's what I, that's what I was, that's where I'm headed with this. Okay, so the very first thing this guy does is he finds this little na- neighborhood area uh, in the suburbs, uh, the southern suburbs of Paris, there's not a lot of information about this, but it's the end of 1997. And he finds an ad where a guy named Frederick Edmund and his, they call her his companion. Um, I don't know if they're business partners strictly or if they're boyfriend, girlfriend, or if they're you know going to be married or whatever. It, it doesn't really matter. But um, uh, Natalie Gerard. And like I said, I'm, I'm mispronouncing these names. That's how it is. They put an ad in the paper in 1997, and they say that they want to sell their nightclub. They have a nightclub there called the New Love. This guy, Alfredo, he shows up, and he goes through all of the like appropriate steps to purchase this nightclub from them. And on November 7th of 1997, the sale is finalized and money is set to be wired and he's going to be taking over uh, the new, the new love nightclub, except on November 13th of 1997, Frederick and Natalie disappear. And that is literally the end of that story. What he did. And the reason he's getting mentioned here is because like this, like this is the big deal. He then takes over, Frederick's identification. So he assumes Fred's identity. And on January the 4th of 1999, we have no idea what this guy was doing in between the end of 97. We don't know what he did in 1998. I assume 
he was somehow doing something related to the new love. I could not for the life of me figure out what happened there. So the questions I had was, did he actually take over? Did he resell it? Did someone figure it out and he had just vanished? There was all these different things going on. But I assume that it somehow went relatively normally because on January 4th of 1999, Alfredo, using the name Frederick Admon, he contacts a man named Simon Cohen who has placed a classified ad for his car. So this is not a nightclub. This is something pretty normal. Without seeing the vehicle or negotiating any price, Alfredo offers Simon that he will pay what Simon wants. And he says, will you come over to New Love? And Simon says yes. And he goes down to the suburb of Paris. And Alfredo meets him and tells him that he has a friend who's going to come by and bring a, a cashier's check from the bank to pay for this car. While they're waiting on this supposed friend, uh, Alfredo says, let me show you like what's going on here. Let me show you my place. Well, Simon's not so sure about that. He's really just wanting to do the deal and move on. But he agrees to a tour of like, new love and like sort of the these this massive uh grounds that surround new love and alfredo pulls out a, a 22 caliber uh carbine rifle and he shoots at simon five times simon makes a break for it he manages to get away from alfredo and sort of disappear behind the, they call it a commune. I don't know if that's literally like what they're meaning, like multiple people live here um, or if they're just like referencing that it's a community and, and this nightclub is in that community. But he manages to get to a neighbor's house by climbing over a fence. That neighbor has heard the shots and sees Simon and calls the police and Alfredo disappears. So Simon gets taken to the emergency room where he has multiple bullet wounds and he goes through a pretty long surgery, but he lives. At this point, the police open an investigation into what's going on with the new love. They discovered that Alfredo is on paper, the owner, and that he has a criminal record for being a con man and for illegal automotives trafficking imports and exports and other things related to, like, cars. So they go to his house, which is in northern France. And his wife, Anne-Marie, is uh, waiting on him to come home. So they sit and wait with her, and he never shows up. Uh, the Cohen case, this this case, this attempted uh, murder case, it doesn't even make uh, the newspaper, really. It shows up in a, uh, I think it's late spring, it shows up as a single, like, three-line article that uh, a man who was attempting to sell his car was shot by the person that he met. So Natalie Gerard's mom reads this article and she has been looking for Natalie and Fred since they disappeared. When this happens, this sort of starts to draw some of the pieces of the puzzle together. But the next thing was pretty bonkers to me. In March of 1999, Alfredo, picks out a classified in advertising for a bed and breakfast in Southern France. It is a very beautiful and high end inn, And he decides that he wants to buy it. It's isolated. It's, it's on a, a really nice piece of property. And on April 10th of 1999, the bill of sale is signed 
And the owners who are uh, Nicole Russo and Claude Molly, they were in the process of getting a divorce. But on April 12th, 1999, they disappear together. Alfredo is now introducing himself as his brother. Okay, so at this point, Alfredo is using his brother's name. He's using Mario uh, Stranieri, same last name, but he's using his brother's name. He claims to be the manager of a large nightclub in Paris. And he doesn't even negotiate. Um, he just accepts the purchase price, which was 4 million francs. And he moves to this inn. And then Nicole and Claude vanish. Claude has a daughter named Corinne. And after she hasn't heard from Claude for a while, she comes down to spy on the inn and see who is there. And she ends up alerting the police. The investigators at the time, with a guy named Colonel Jerry Plenay, uh, they discovered that Alfredo had been wanted for the attempted murder of Simon Cohen. But they didn't know him as Alfredo. They still knew him as Mario. So on July 7th of 1999, Mario Stranieri was arrested. He was arrested down in uh, southwestern France. And the case gets put out where... They form essentially a task force and they bring in what's the equivalent of the FBI. And on July 19th of 1999, the police find the bodies of Fred, uh, Fred Admon and Natalie Gerard in the garden of the nightclub and the commune area where Simon had been shot, but where essentially Alfredo had buried them. And then the following day, on July 20th of 1999, they ended up finding near the end the bodies of Claude and Nicole. Now, they end up arresting Anne-Marie, who is Alfredo's wife. And on February 18th of 2003, four years later, he goes on trial. His trial lasts nine days. And he ends up being sentenced to life imprisonment with a 22-year security sentence, meaning he has to serve 22 years. In 2004, the Court of Appeals in France confirmed his conviction, and he tried to appeal again in 2005, but that appeal was rejected. It's so hard to read something that's been translated multiple times. I know. I was actually looking. I was trying to find the club. Um, it was the Oasis, and then it became the Love Club or whatever. I was interested to see, like, you know, is this somebody's house? Like, what does this look like, right? And it's, I couldn't even find it. So the Oasis was actually a restaurant, and then they converted it to a club because they had trouble with – I don't know if it's the health department or what that they had trouble with. It's very difficult to read about this case in the translations of it. From what I can tell, Alfredo's still alive and he's currently 66 years old. He was um, very young when he was doing this. He was in his thirties. Is he still in uh, jail? He's in prison. Yeah. And so he was, he, I have a feeling uh, he was motivated solely by uh, money. Right. Yeah. Because he was, you know, stealing property, which, Seems like it should have been a little harder. You know what I mean? As far as yeah. um, it, it just seems like uh, that would have left a trail more so than it did. Now, the name changing, um, that could have added to it a little bit. And I, I'm not sure I can. You're right. It is hard to read when it's been translated. Um, and because words have different meanings and it's that it can, the details could actually change what's happening there. Right. Yeah. Um, it just seems like uh, with big transactions like that, it would be far more traceable than when you're talking about selling somebody, you know, furniture off of the classifieds. Right. Yeah. These were not like your run of the mill murders when you're like buying someone's bed and breakfast. It's kind of weird to me. 
So I had wanted to at least um, address this one. Now I have one more that falls into this pile, but I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna hold back on that for now. I think we're gonna come back around to him later. Um, that's also not an American case. And to be honest with you, when we're doing these non-American cases um, in the course of researching an American case, I'm really doing it for the behavior side of things. And I wanted to show like there's so many of these. Um, Lonely Hearts Killers that take place in different countries. He was the one that I chose here, but I was sort of going backwards in time, if that makes sense. So I was starting with, like today we talked about the the Florida stuff. Okay, then this stuff took place in the 90s. We're going all the way back to a guy that uh, in the early 80s, in essentially the Miami area, he was accused of 50 rapes, uh, including some that were done with classified ads. And he is going to be the basis for the next couple of episodes because he has a lot in common with some of the other killers that we're covering. Um, before we covered him, had you ever heard this guy before without us naming him here? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. He's one of those that, like, I'm shocked he doesn't get more attention. Um, but we're going to talk about maybe why he doesn't in the next episode. Thank you so much for joining us today. I would ask if you guys like the show, please share the show. Or you can go on to your favorite podcast app, whether it's Apple or Google or uh, one of the more interesting apps, Spotify, Overcast. Uh, we're on all those different things. If you could go on there and leave us a, a rating or a review. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to leave us a five-star review, but like whatever you think of the show, leave an honest review of the show uh, because that will help us to grow our audience in season four. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at True Crime Excess, or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252 365 5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at TrueCrimeXS at gmail.com, and you can check out our website at www.TrueCrimeXS.com. We'll see you next time.
Yeah.